Hey, everybody. It's Jillian Youngblood with Civic Genius. I'm here today with Ari Cohn. He is a free speech counsel at the nonprofit organization Tech Freedom. He is also an attorney who specializes in First Amendment and defamation law. And today he's here to help us answer some thorny questions about online misinformation and disinformation, particularly a section of law that protects tech companies from what users, regular people, post on their online platforms. So in other words, we're talking about this very familiar situation where someone posts something horrible or ridiculous or just wrong on social media. People disagree about whether the post in question actually is horrible or ridiculous or wrong. And then tech companies have to decide if they're going to leave that post up or if they're going to take it down. So Ari, thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure. So let me just ask you, there are, I think, I don't think it's incorrect to say dozens of bills in Congress that would regulate tech companies in some way. Everybody's mad at tech companies about something right now. One thing when we're talking about disinformation that comes up a lot is something known as Section 230. Very, uh, very user-friendly, right? So can you tell us what is Section 230? So Section 230 came about uh, in the mid-90s as the Internet was kind of really taking off as the next big thing. Um, and to give you a little context from for it, uh, there were two cases that happened, um, one of which was a defamation case uh, against Prodigy, which uh, was, for people who don't know, is one of the earliest kind of walled garden internet providers, uh, along with AOL and, and CompuServe, who we'll get to in a second. Um, so they uh, they were sued by somebody who's, uh, who's allegedly libeled on their service. And a court, a trial court had held that because Prodigy billed itself as a family-friendly, uh, hands-on moderation uh, service and exercised some control over the content on it, that they would they could be liable for information posted on their service. Um, and there was a component case, um, I, I, not really a component case, a completely separate case uh, called CompuServe versus Cubby Inc., where a court said that CompuServe was not liable for something that was posted uh, on its service because there was no allegation that CompuServe knew or should have known about the defamatory nature of the material. So what that implied was that if they did know or have reason to know, they could have been liable. And this created what we called the moderator's dilemma, which is on one hand, if you do too much moderation and exercise too much control, uh, you're going to be liable for anything anyone posts on, on your service uh, because, you know, you've undertaken that that goal and you can be presumed basically to know what's on your site and, and deal with it. On the other hand, you have the the second half of the moderator's dilemma, which is that you have strong incentives to not find out what is on your service. Uh, if you have actual or constructive knowledge and you can be liable, there's heavy incentive to make it very difficult to put you on notice of some terrible content on your service. That's a lead up to what Congress did to resolve the moderator's dilemma, which is to pass Section 230, which very simply says that interactive computer services are not liable as publishers for material provided 
by uh, by users basically. Um, so what that means is if I post something defamatory on Twitter, Twitter is simply not liable as the publisher uh, of that information. You can't sue. You can sue me for defamation. You can't sue Twitter because I posted it on Twitter. That's the the, the crux of what Section Two Hundred and Thirty really does. Um, and uh, over the years, the the courts have examined Section 230 and applied it in many different cases and wildly different fact patterns. And what it comes down to is that it protects the traditional editorial functions that websites do. So whether to publish something, whether to remove something, whether to modify something, uh, if your lawsuit is based on those traditional editorial functions, then you can't sue the platform for it, basically. And I hesitate to use the word platform because the publisher versus platform uh, debate, which is all nonsense because the actual law does not say anything about publishers versus platforms, but I suspect we'll get to that momentarily. <laughs> Let's get to it right now. So how is this different than the way that, say, a newspaper or a cable you know, TV news station is regulated. If you say something, and maybe actually before we even do that, could you just give us an example of what, just to make it really concrete, what is a good example of what what kind of defamation you're talking about? Is this like if I leave a terrible Yelp review for a restaurant in my neighborhood and I say, oh, I got food poisoning there, and they're like, no, you didn't. Like what kind of, what are some examples of of what sort of conflicts we're talking about here? Yeah, and without getting too much into the weeds on defamation law, which I could keep you wrapped up in for hours, uh, <laughs> you know, it's something like that, a, a false statement of fact that does harm to a person or, or a business, uh, you know, made with some kind of responsibility, whether it be negligence or uh, with reckless disregard for the truth, if it's a public figure. You know, if I, if I said on Twitter that, um, you know, Jillian sacrifices goats in her backyard uh, and, and abuses animals, uh, that might be cause for, for a defamation lawsuit. Or if I say, or if you say, for instance, on Twitter that, you know, Ari embezzles tens of millions of dollars from his clients, um, you know, that, that also could be grounds for a defamation lawsuit. Uh, and we could sue each other for those statements, but what's clear is that we can't sue Twitter for it or Facebook for it or wherever you happen to post it. Got it. And to get to your question, I guess, about the difference between newspapers and, and internet services is, in a word, scale. Um, the New York Times picks its letters to the editor and it goes through and it, you know, it actually uh, has limited space for them. Anyone can sign up for a Twitter or a Facebook account and post basically whatever they want at first until they get in trouble from the platform. To address the difference between social media platforms, for instance, and something like the New York Times, the New York Times has, has limited space. It selects its letters to the editor. It selects the columns it's going to run. It selects its editorials. Anyone can sign up for a Twitter account or a Facebook account and start posting willy-nilly, basically. And to give you a sense of the difference, uh, there are 995 Instagram images, 6,000 tweets, and 41,000 Facebook posts that go up every second of every day. <laughs> and they're all there's, perfectly researched. Yeah. The, the problem is there's just no way to moderate perfectly at scale. You can't address that volume perfectly or even close to good 
uh, to be quite honest. Uh, and so what would we rather have? Would we rather have these platforms throwing their hands up in the air and say, I'm not going to even try because I don't want to be found liable for these things? Or would we rather have them do some kind of moderation, albeit imperfectly, and say, we're going to try and get some of the garbage off of the Internet um, and, you know, we're not going to be perfect, but, you know, that, that's, that's what we should want. We should want companies to be, have the ability to, to kind of clean up their sites, even if they're not doing it perfectly, uh, and, and without fearing overwhelming liability. And, you know, to, to really bring it into a little bit of more relief is it's not always whether, and this will become important later, I think, it's not always whether some, somebody wins a lawsuit, um, the cost of litigation is enormous, even for a lawsuit that you that a platform might end up winning. And when you talk about that many posts every second, you can imagine the number of lawsuits that creative plaintiffs lawyers might try to bring. And the, just the, the sheer volume of those would be enough to overwhelm even the most uh, well-girded legal department. Yeah. And I think, so this is, this whole thing is making me feel very old because we started talking about Prodigy and CompuServe right off the bat. And I think internet, yeah. what is the legal, like how it's written in the law, internet or computer, interactive, interactive computer, computer services. services. Yeah. It sounds very nineties. So is, um, so I think the original idea here is I'm just thinking, you know, this was in the, the 1990s. Um, this is kind of the early days of the internet. So what the people who the members of Congress who um, pushed Section 230 through, I think we're trying to protect. Is this right? They were sort of trying to protect this nascent tech industry. It sounds like it could have been bankrupted right off the bat. Yeah, they, they were trying to do exactly that. And to be honest, it was a very, very prescient law. You know, the Congressman Cox and Senator Wyden were just uh, just so ahead of their time when they came up with this idea and and it's really responsible for a lot of the modern internet as we know it it, it could not have grown uh to the way it is right the 20 what is it the 27 words that created the internet is how i've heard this described 26 26, 26. <laughs> so close um and that was a republican and a democrat if i'm not wrong it was indeed uh you know a, a far cry from our partisan battle lines of today yeah uh those were the days. Um, you you mentioned. Of course, something. we always look back to the halcyon days of bipartisanship. Ten years from now, we'll look back at today and say, "Ah, oh, the, the good old days." <laughs> it's true. I have a book that I haven't read yet, actually. That is all about how violent Congress used to be, and people used to just be getting into. Oh yeah, the fights. canings. Yeah. So many canings. I don't know where people had all these got all these canes from, but you mentioned something something that I, I think I didn't fully appreciate, which is. Companies without Section 230 would have had an incentive to just let everything stay on. And the internet would potentially, with, without Section 230, the internet might be a much more hate speechy, false, <laughs> terrible, pornographic yeah, I mean, place. Right. I mean, you think about all the garbage that you see online now. Imagine that, but like that's all you see. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of where we would have ended up. Um, you know, and to be fair, some people might prefer that. Um, but this is the genius of Section 230 is that it is a profoundly market-oriented solution. It lets each company decide what its rules for its site or its service is going to be and do it. And then 
they can compete for, for users to say, I like this site's rules better. I like that site's rules better. It allows for a diversity of different approaches to content moderation and for people to make up their own minds about which one of those services they want to use. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. So you get Facebook can say, hey, we are a family friendly. I don't know if they actually say this. I don't mean to put words in Facebook's mouth, but some version of this is a place for the general public. You know, there are some things that we know our users don't really want to see here and things that they do want to see here. So we're going to make that decision to moderate in a certain way. And then you could be Gab or Parler or um, I think that those still exist. Um, and they could they say, do. we're yeah. not going to moderate anything. You can do whatever you want here and users can go there. And so you're saying there's consumer choice here. Yeah, there's there's plenty of consumer choice. And, you know, there's a, a lot of talk about how, oh, but Facebook and Twitter and the, the big players have such a dominant marketplace, but dominant spot in the marketplace. But what you never think see people thinking about is MySpace used to be that dominant player. And where is it now? Uh, the, the Internet is a rapidly changing place where, I mean, you just saw Facebook lose how many billions of dollars in market cap in a single day. I mean, things change rapidly and dominant players aren't always dominant players. Things are going to change. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so you're a First Amendment lawyer. So tell me something that I hear a lot. Um, we have a really politically diverse um, world of people who, who are involved with civic genius. So I have talked to people on the left who say, I see things all day that need to come down. The social media companies don't do nearly a good enough job of taking down things that are wrong and things that are hateful. And then I talked to people on the right who would say, why would we let a couple of giant companies decide what the world gets to see? So can you talk a little bit about how Section 230 interacts with our right to free speech under the Constitution? Yeah, and I would say, you know, I guess, first of all, the answer to both of those things is, you know, vote with your feet, vote with your walls, vote with your, I guess, keyboard fingers or whatever, uh, but keep the government out of it. Uh, and one of the things that, that Section 230 does is basically coextensive with, with what the First Amendment already did, uh, which is that it allows platforms to decide what speech they want published on their site. The First Amendment protects that choice as well uh, of the platforms, platforms themselves. If speech is constitutionally protected, they have a right to publish it. And if they don't want to publish certain speech, the government can't force them. And what Section 230 does is provides an escape hatch for those lawsuits that are, you know, on either side of that, uh, saying, you know, okay, no, the, the platform isn't liable, like, go sort it out with whoever posted the offending content or, in the case of them removing content, um, sort it out with yourself, I suppose. Um, but the First Amendment protects editorial discretion. And it's important to remember that without Section 230, platforms would still have that editorial control. They would retain that right to editorial discretion. They would be subject to a lot of abusive lawsuits that might uh, cost them a ton of money. But at the end of the day, um, and, and the, the people, say, on the right who are, think that platforms take down too much speech, you're still not going to have, uh, you know, a right to post on someone else's website. Uh, that's, that's, that's not First Amendment protected. You know, the First Amendment protects you from government interference and regulation and punishment of speech. Uh, it does not protect you from a private company saying, we don't wish to associate with that speech. On the left... You see a lot of complaints about hateful speech and disinformation and whatnot. And 
while those might be problems and people might ascribe them varying levels of severity, uh, the fact of the matter is, even without Section 230, there's not necessarily liability. Uh, and, and people seem to lose that uh, that thread in the conversation a lot. And it's understandable because people aren't lawyers, largely. Um, but you have to be able to sue for something. And if, you know, I say something false about what have you, government affairs or, or what have you on, on Facebook or Twitter, there's nothing that X person can sue me for for saying something that's wrong because false speech is generally protected by the First Amendment. Uh, you can't sue usually publishers of, of speech for things like negligent speech. That cause of action doesn't really exist. And the First Amendment actually precludes a lot of that liability. Uh, so there's really a misconception about what changing or getting rid of Section 230 would even do. Um, and the fact of the matter is that the First Amendment would basically give platforms the right to do all the things that they are already doing. So, uh, you know, this the Section 230 is largely a boogeyman meant to grab headlines and, and fundraise off of for politicians, if I'm, if I'm being honest. So, yeah, that it's a really it's a really good distinction just to make it really clear. So if somebody if I post something um you know, that is unfounded about the COVID vaccine, or I say that a certain politician is a lizard person or whatever <laughs> I've decided to post online, like they can't, there's no other recourse. It, like that stays up because I, you're, as you said, you're allowed to say things that are incorrect. And the only, the only entity that can really make a choice about whether that gets published anywhere is the publisher or, oh, yeah. have I mess have I confused publishers and platforms now? <laughs> Should we talk about uh, that? <laughs> well, to I mean, to, to make a quick point, though, um, this has been tried against non-internet uh, publishers and services uh, for decades and decades and decades. Even just recently, uh, an organization in Washington state tried to sue Fox News over, you know, COVID misinformation. And the case was dismissed because there's there's just no liability for you know, negligently saying things that are false. You know, there's plenty of speech that is very harmful um, and it's not problematic to say that it's harmful, but it's protected by the First Amendment nonetheless. Uh, and, and so there's just this lack of connection in between, you know, what people think should be the law and what the law actually permits. Um, and that's true in almost every area of the law, but when it comes to speech, uh, it seems to be a particular problem. Yeah. So we, so we kind of, it sounds like we have, for people who don't like the editorial decisions of some of the big platforms, it doesn't really sound like there's any other choice except to stop using them. And that can feel like a frustrating choice because you can leave, you know, Twitter, and maybe everyone else doesn't leave Twitter and you're like, oh, but the, the stuff that I don't like is still happening. Um, but it sounds like the, you know, getting rid of Section 230 would not would not really solve any of those problems. And and you're saying it's it's kind of a thing that the market should figure out. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, sometimes standing on principle and saying, I'm going to leave this social media platform, uh, you know, might not be comfortable for you and it might not be a, you know, something you want to do, but then you have to just make up the mind, your mind for yourself. Well, am I bothered enough by this that I'm going to leave? And if I'm not going to leave, am I really all that bothered by it? Mm -hmm. Yep. 
yeah, I've heard people say, you know, I think it's crazy that Facebook or, or YouTube is judge and jury for what millions and millions of people can see. Um, and then have heard people respond, well, do you want the government to be judge and jury of what you can see? Right. That That is indisputably worse. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, no, there is nothing about the internet, there's nothing about, say, Facebook that makes it the only place where you can see information or share information with others. There are plenty of products out there, uh, and there are plenty of products that are not even yet a glimmer in their creator's eyes that will come to be. Uh, it is inevitable. That is the nature of the internet and how we are progressing. Um, there's always going to be more places, and you know, you might not like that the editorial decisions of uh, one particular company is keeping you from your preferred platform, but it's not your platform and you don't really have a right to your preferred platform uh, on somebody else's property. Right. You can still stand on your front lawn with whatever sign you want, calling whoever you want. And maybe that's, person. maybe it's a problem with, you know, with how we view uh, our, our communications these days is we are, we have ourselves tied ourselves into, you know, this thought process that we are limited to a few specific ways of communicating when there are untold ways of communicating, uh, that, you know, we can explore if only we decide to do it. Um, but we have found what is convenient and human beings are loath to give up what is convenient to them. Um, perhaps understandably, but, you know, we have made ourselves perpetually online. Um, and if we want to find out who's to blame for that, you know, we look in a mirror. Yeah. So what, what would you say, it, what are some of those other places or what other kind of communication do you think maybe we should be thinking about? I mean, you can go to any of the other social media platforms. Uh, you can, you could build your own social media platforms. People are doing that, uh, you know, and frankly, for instance, the um, the Mastodon uh, framework that I think Trump's new social media uh, platform is based on. It's actually not terribly difficult if you have a small amount of experience. Granted, it's not easy. And if you want to grow into a huge public thing, that requires a lot of, uh, you know, time and money. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that that's the that's how innovation works. Uh, people decide, I don't like what's going on. I have a better idea. I'm going to give it a shot. Um, we could also literally just talk to other human beings. Uh, I mean, it's that the art of that seems to have been fairly lost. Um, and there's all there's also non-social media ways of communicating. You can email your your baby pictures to your mom. You can you know you can call people on the phone. I know that's a weird thing that people don't do anymore. I am I'm sorry on the blame. what is that like an app that I download on my <laughs> when my phone device. rings I look at it in disgust and consider throwing it out the window. So uh, <laughs> I am I am just equally terrible in this regard. So um, you know there's just. There's so many different ways we can communicate and to fool ourselves into thinking, ah, well, if I get booted from Facebook, how will I know what's going on with the world? It's, it's myopic. Yes, I, you are speaking my language. <laughs> it's so true. We could just have conversations. Um, right. And I say that as a person who not many people want to talk to. <laughs> and if I can say that. You are a delay. You can call me anytime that you don't <laughs> want to get on. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm trying to think of a platform I haven't mentioned yet. <laughs> we did AOL Gab, we did Instant Parler. Messenger. Yes. <laughs> oh, 
Poro on send, out for AOL. I'll send you an messenger. ICQ chat or something. <laughs> oh man, this got nerdy really fast. <laughs> um, let me ask you. So we have a pretty good understanding of, of what you would say about section 230. I think there are something like, if I'm counting correctly, 18 bills. The last time I looked in Congress that would amend section 230, some of them would even abolish it. So there are a few that would remove section 230 um, completely and make tech companies liable for the speech that's on their platforms. Um, something that has different kinds and degrees of support on both the, the right and the left, which is interesting. Um, I, I believe there's a bill that would prohibit companies from taking down content. Um, I think that that came from someone who said um, platforms are taking down too much uh, conservative content and we shouldn't let them do that. Um, there, there is some talk about prohibiting companies from using the algorithms that they use today. So um, basically saying you could have a, you know, a chronological timeline like you used to in the earlier Facebook days or, um, or something like that, but you can't have a most popular timeline that the algorithms shouldn't be able to say, this is content that we're gonna push to everybody. My very favorite one, would require social media companies to have um, customer service hotlines <laughs> that you'd be able to like call and there'd be a call center and you could say, I'm mad about this. And I think it should come down. I just think it sounds like a very funny, um, it sounds like sketch comedy. Um, well, but you know what, that, that would make sense because people just really more than anything these days want someone to be mad and yell at. So, you know, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to take a job at a social media platform's customer service hotline. Uh, but I actually think that might mollify a certain number of people who literally just want to yell at someone. That's a really good point. Maybe everyone just get it out of their system and say, you know, it's okay. Yeah, I'm over that's it. what Congress is for, isn't it? <laughs> Zing. So, so you're much more familiar with this legislation than I am. Is there anything, and you know, some of these bills are very short. Some of them are much longer and much more complex. Is there anything in any of those bills out there that you think is worthwhile? The fact of the matter is these bills just all just inexplicably fail to really understand what the law does, what the First Amendment does. They're all very confused, which is not necessarily surprising because most of them are introduced basically to get their sponsors and their authors, you know, invited to the Sunday shows and headlines and, you know, for them to say, look, I'm doing something to take on big tech. You know, there's nothing better from an elected official's perspective than being able to say I'm doing something, even if you're not really doing anything. <laughs> You know, you have the legislation on the right that says, oh, you can't take down X content. Well, we've already seen two of those laws in the states be struck down on First Amendment grounds uh, because they interfere with the editorial discretion of platforms. And I've, bless their hearts, they keep not learning their lesson because they keep saying, you know, this is about the liberal bias of these platforms. And the judges have pointed to this and said, hey, you are literally going after them for their for their expressive conduct that is like you're going after their viewpoint. And if there's anything that the First Amendment says, it says you cannot discriminate in law based on viewpoint. Um, but they keep saying it. Why? My guess is because, you know, they don't care if the law gets struck down that, you know, they want to fundraise off of it. And then they want to be able to blame the courts and say, ah, oh, the, the liberal judges are uh, out to get us. Uh, it's all good business for politicians. Uh, then you have the stuff on the left um, that don't really seem to, to grasp 
the algorithms are probably the one that drives me the most crazy uh, because computer code, especially computer code that results in an expressive output, um, is protected by the First Amendment and ought to be protected by the First Amendment. Uh, it's, you know, the Facebook's or YouTube, let's say YouTube's algorithm on suggested content based on your previous views um, isn't all that meaningfully different than a bookstore owner who you tell what you've read recently and says, I recommend this book and that book or the staff's pick section or what have you. Um, it's it's not so meaningfully different, but the, there's just this, the, the boogeyman of algorithms, that's another huge buzzword these days. Um, you know, they, they just, it's not going to gonna do anything. And removing Section 230, say, for algorithmically, you know, uh, promoted speech doesn't really do anything. You have these cases for decades and decades, like I said, of people trying to sue say, um, magazine publishers for, you know, things that po that supposedly like caused readers to do something. Uh, the Dungeons and Dragons maker got sued, uh, after a kid committed suicide and they said that it was Dungeons and Dragons fault. TV shows got sued over and over again saying, ah, your programming inspired violence, uh, you know, copycat violence in real life and every time video games I would yeah guess. video ga video games a huge one you know and every time book publishers uh you know there's a, a case where somebody um ate a mushroom that they misidentified using a, a a book on foraging mushrooms um and tried to sue the publisher and the, in that case the court said you can't expect a book publisher to go through every book and verify the accuracy that would chill speech. The only books that would be published would be the most anodyne, sterile books of no controversy whatsoever. The first amendment prohibits this, the sought after broad liability for words. And people have tried to make it into a products liability cases and the courts say, no speech isn't a product. Uh, and, be, and this is all going back to the first amendment and saying, you know, it's up to us. We, we read things and we make decisions uh, based on what we read, but, but it's on us to really filter the information for ourselves, decide, you know, what we think is worth listening to, what we think is, we, is not, what is true, what is false. Um, the government can't make those decisions for us. The government should not be making those decisions for us. There's a, a short sightedness to all of this that really just doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah. And, what people really need to realize, aside from the fact that government in intervention and, and giving that government the government that power is extraordinarily dangerous, is the simple fact that law can't fix all of humanity's problems. Um, pe this is a people problem. False information is a people problem. People inexplicably taking medical advice from television shows is a people problem. Uh, I'm sorry, but you know, it's a little bit hard to feel sympathy for people who see somebody on TV talking about horse dewormer and then just go to say, Oh, you know what? I'm going to ignore my doctor and listen to that guy on TV. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's just, it's not a particularly sympathetic posture from my perspective. Um, but you know, these are all people problems and we can't look to the law to solve all these issues. Cause if we do, we're going to be very disappointed, you know, <laughs> You know, the saying is like, you yeah. can't fix stupid, but, you know, I'll amend that say, you know, the law can't fix people. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is a good t-shirt that I will have made and sent to you shortly. <laughs> um, 
if it doesn't already exist. Um, yeah, it's like I always try to do the exercise when I when I try to think of is this something that I would want Congress to tackle or get involved in is I imagine the worst version of who a president could be, whatever that means to me, and think, okay, would I want this person having influence over the, the federal agencies that actually carry out this work? Well, it, and it's amazing that people on both sides of the aisle think either we just had the craziest, worst president in office and people on the right who now think we have the craziest, worst president in office. The inability to, like, realize that this is not theoretical. The person who you don't want to give this power to, like, the archetype of this person is currently or just was in office the the inability to understand that people you like aren't going to be the ones applying these laws it's just it's baffling like have you have you not been paying attention to literally anything <laughs> it hasn't been great it hasn't been it's, great. it's really confusing to me but you know again it's a people thing yeah, it's and I, you know, so I understand. So this all makes a lot of sense to me. And at the same time, I guess what I would ask is, if we care about having, I will just presume and you can tell me if I'm presuming incorrectly, if we care about having a healthy online discourse that's based on facts, and we care about free expression, about the rights of Americans to do things like question the government, question an official narrative, ask, you know, ask questions, criticize people in power, things that are really fundamental to being an American. Are there any reforms that you think we should be talking about? Because it is like there is a real problem, right? People are there are there is speech that happens online or wherever, but we'll we'll talk about online for now that has real world harms. Um you know, the there is a book that's just coming out about the disinformation campaign around the Sandy Hook shootings, for example, um, and Alex Jones, the conspiratorial podcaster, radio host, whatever we call him, um, really made the lives of these families miserable by, you know, saying they were crisis actors and the shootings never happened and just tormented these people. That's an extreme example, but... Do you think that's, are you saying that's kind of the cost of doing business in a country with free speech? It kind of is, you know, that freedom does have certain costs and that's kind of the balance that, that we've chosen, that, that we did choose. And some people would like to change that to them. I wish good luck because um, constitutional amendments are no small feat. Uh, but, you know, the to some extent, yeah, that's a problem. And I, I, I get it. Like it's, emotionally appealing it's it's um you know it's a sympathetic argument uh but you know the fact of the matter is that that is the cost of doing business and again the law can't fix people there's just so much speech out there that is harmful in some way or the other subjectively oftentimes and who gets to decide which subjective harms are are adequate and which ones are you know, worthy of of regulating against and, and what have you. It's just, it's an impossible morass of people in this age of culture war, uh, you know, trying to battle each other. And, and frankly, you know, a lot of it might be in bad faith, too. You know, you're going to get people alleging these these quote unquote harms from speech. Uh, basically in order to silence the people they disagree with. Uh, you know, it's it just, that's human, human, all too human. It's it's how we are. And I don't mean to say, to you know, to sound flippant either, because I understand it. We can acknowledge that there are costs. It doesn't hurt 
the principles of free expression to acknowledge that free speech has costs and that free speech can be harmful sometimes. Um, for my money, it's well worth it in the end. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. the the keeping the government out of these decisions uh, is is worth these costs. Uh, and I say that completely acknowledging that I come from a relative position of, uh, you know, of privilege in that respect, that I don't deal with a lot of the worst of it. Um, but, you know, that's, it, it's on us to, to kind of explain why that's the case. Uh, and, and sometimes maybe we lose sight of that fact too, uh, that, mm -hmm. you know, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, you can't take for granted that people appreciate why free speech is important. I want to acknowledge what you said about, you know, having different positions of, of privilege on the internet. Like I am a woman on the internet. I get some really interesting emails. Um, so I think about it, you know, I think about it a lot. Like I know there, we talk to people of color who get, who get, yeah. have a really different experience online. And, and uh, I, I, I appreciate say, you, you know, just kind of saying. Like, yeah. You know I'm not, I'm not indifferent to it as, as somebody who just last night very strangely got called a Nazi of all things, you know, and, and who has gotten death threats before, you know, it's, I, I, I know that from, you know, what I experienced, you know, I assume that others have it a million times worse. And I think it's worth acknowledging that. And I think it's worth, you know, saying that, you know, we see that and, you know, we, we understand why that's a problem. That doesn't necessarily mean that our proposed solution has to be some kind of government intervention, but you know, at a bare minimum, we should acknowledge, you know, that it's an issue. Yeah. Um, what do you think about, do, I guess, does your feeling about that extend to what we talk about a lot at Civic Genius, which is polarization? So one thing that people will say is certainly there used to be different newspapers and maybe you read a newspaper with one political leaning or another political leaning, or people are handing out pamphlets in the town square. Um, you know, and maybe you agree with them. Maybe you don't. Um, something that's a little different about social media is that we're not all seeing the same things at all. Like if I walk up to a newsstand, if newsstands still exist anymore, um, I could see there's the New York Post and the Daily News and the New York Times and the Economist. And they're all of, I'm aware that there are different headlines and perspectives and covers. And now, like my, my sister and I were talking about this, we have kind of different political views and we just full on do not see the same stuff on social media. So there will be things that to me are a huge deal that everybody knows. And there are things that to her are a huge deal and everybody knows. And we talk to each other and are like, oh, our huge deals do not overlap at all. Um, and it's causing, a, you know, this polarization, political polarization is causing, um, again, some some real world harms to our, our um, system of government. Is, would you say the same thing? Like we need to, there are other solutions we need to look at, like actually talking together in person maybe, or do you think that there are policies online that we need? You know, I, I, I don't think there are any policies, at least government imposed policies, because just the thought of, again, the government saying, ah, well, you have to read these multiple different sources or you have to be exposed to the speech. Uh, I, you know, it's just, it's, it makes me cringe um, deeply inside. It, you know, here's the thing. I get asked plenty of times, oh, why do you follow that, you know, jerk on Twitter? I follow a lot of people who I think are absolutely stone cold crazy. Um, and it's because, you know, oftentimes I, I kind of want to see what they're up to, um, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I, and maybe my perspective is a little bit skewed because when you work in, in free speech, you kind of 
get a sense of what all of the big deal things are, because at the end of the day, someone's going to make a dumb free speech argument about it. Uh, so, you know, we kind of like get the, the crash of culture wars like all around us because inevitably somebody always makes it a first amendment issue. Uh, so, you know, I, I, maybe my ability to kind of see all these big deals at once is a uh, somewhat of a unique perspective, but you know, people, sh people should follow people. They disagree with people should talk to people. They disagree with, I disagree with people all the time uh, and have a good time doing it. Even if we, you know, get a little snarky at each other from time to time. Um, but you know, again, that's, that's an us problem. You know, we seek out these echo chambers. Nobody has to live in an echo chamber. You know, you don't, you know, it's just, it, it's a matter of if you're joining all these groups with one political perspective uh, and then the algorithm thinks that that's what you want to see, like, that's only because you told it that's what you want to see. Uh, you know, the, go join some groups of people you disagree with or, or, you know, start giving the algorithm something else to chew on, I suppose. Uh, you know, we, our echo chambers are largely of our own making, uh, you know, at the they're, they're all, you know, people talk about how the algorithm is perpetuated, but it's only because we put ourselves in there in the first place uh, right. and read different things. People need to be a little bit more intellectually curious about the things they disagree with. Um, you know, it's that's that's a tale as old as time. Uh, we love confirmation bias. Uh, it's great. Uh, it, feel, it, feels it feels so good. Yeah, it feels awesome. Uh, but then you end up missing something. You you miss something big. And this is, you know, something I've said over and over over the past decade is that, that if you lose sight of the ability to explain to somebody who thinks you're wrong why you're right, eventually you're going to lose the recognition in yourself of why you even believe what you believe. And that's, that's kind of not a place you want to get to. Uh, you know, we should always subject our tests, you know, our, our beliefs to testing. And, and, you know, even if it's internally, you can't ever lose sight of why you believe what you believe, because then you're just a robot. Then you you know better than an algorithm at that point. Right. Yeah, I think it's a great point. You There's a, a sort of feeling of inevitability about social media that you have to, you know, you have to fill out all the questions when you sign up. And, um, you know, the user experience may make you feel like you need to be sharing and clicking and liking. This is maybe veering a little bit more into like kind of the less... Um, you know, social media regulation side and more into my personal, you know, uh, philosophy of it. But you know, there's, there's a lot of um, hesitation to maybe engage with or state an opinion that disagrees with, quote unquote, like your side, um, because then you're going to get, you know, all kinds of grief for it. Personally, um, you know, I try to never be on anyone else's side. Um, so, you know, that's why you have people on, you know, on Mondays saying that I'm some kind of, uh, deep state, George Soros, globalist banker, whatever you have you. And then, you know, on, on Tuesday, I'm some right wing hack, uh, who's, uh, basically two steps from a Nazi, uh, you know, but, you know, I, personally, I find it hilarious and I love it. I know that not everybody, you know, is cut out for that uh, particular nonsense. I Maybe I'm just a chaos Muppet, but, um, <laughs> you know, that, that's, you know, 
we we should be okay with that. We really should. I wish more people were okay with it. I wish more people got out of the the, the tribal mentalities of of our modern politics because that's really, you know, if you want to find the, the solution that doesn't involve social media and the government regulating speech, it's a, again, it's us. You know, get out of that mindset of our team versus your team. Um, you know, you it's. One idea versus another idea is fine. But when you then say, I have to agree with all of the people who agree with my ideas, other ideas, you know, we get into that unattainable situation where the polarization just grows and grows and grows. And, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on the psychology of, uh, of polarization. Don't get me wrong. But from my, you know, layperson's eyes, that's, um, you know, that, that seems to be a, a huge contributor, probably much more so than whatever social media is doing. Right. Right. Yeah. You just made my, uh, my pitch a lot better than, than I could, I think for <laughs> some of the work that we're trying to do. So I appreciate that. So Ari, before you go, um, I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about tech freedom and the work you guys do. Tech Freedom is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank devoted to technology, law, and policy. We look to find ways to make sure that tech can continue having the beneficial impacts that it has on all of our lives. And I don't think anyone can dispute the fact that tech has improved our lives immeasurably in so many different ways. Um, but when new technologies come out, as always, there's a reflexive uh, you know, tendency to try and define it by its worst aspects and, and, you know, deal with it accordingly. But that really just stifles innovation. So, you know, we want to preserve the ways that we can move forward with technology without, you know, regulating it out of existence, basically, by, you know, sticking to its, the worst things that people do with it, you know, uh, tech, 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 as in anything, uh, is susceptible to misuse. Um, like you see people attacking other people with hammers on the New York City subways. Um, you know, I don't want I don't want hammers to be banned either. That's broadly what we do. Um, we we work in uh, content moderation and First Amendment issues, as well as uh, competition and antitrust, uh, telecom law, um, and just all with an eye towards allowing tech to, tech to move us forward into the future instead of being held back by people who fear it. Very cool. I was so glad to be introduced to you guys. Um, you do really interesting work. We really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you um, talking with me today. I had a blast. I'll do this anytime. Come back anytime. We have lots You're of questions. <laughs>